millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Notable. Hello, I'm Stuart McConey. And I'm Elizabeth Holker. You may know us from our previous radio work in which we've talked, to use the technical term, a lot a lot about music. Yeah, yeah. Since 2011. Since 2011. Yeah. Established 2011, yeah. it'll say on our plaque. <laughs> we talked about doing a podcast. Well, we've talked about it many times, haven't we? Yeah, we, we have. We thought there was a, a shortage of podcasts. That's right. We thought there's been such a terrible shortage of podcasts, hasn't there? Especially <laughs> at the moment that we wanted to do our bit to try and fill the podcast gap. Do you know what I yeah. mean? You'll have heard us talking in the past mainly about pop music and yeah. rock music because that was the nature of the station and the nature of the show. But we're also both really interested in, well, all kinds of music, aren't we? Classical yeah. music. Experimental, electronica. Jazz. Yeah. All kinds of things. Um, and we're also really interested in things like pop culture and politics and history. And yeah. so this gave us an idea for this podcast called Notable, which is kind of like strange but fascinating tales from the whole world of music. Absolutely. And these aren't just, well, they're good pub facts, but they're more than that, aren't they? Yeah. So not just fascinating, though it is, the rumour that Bob Holness played the saxophone solo on Baker Street. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off yeah. a bat. Keith those Richards are fun- falling out of a coconut tree. Keith Richards falling out of the coconut tree. We've all covered f- those now. We've covered those and they're all fun <laughs> and fascinating. But there's a bit more too uh, notable, we hope, than that. Yeah. These are stories that kind of resonate beyond the world of music. That's right. Probably tell you a lot about social history at the time, maybe. So in the future, you might hear us talking about things like, well... Why I think Apache by The Shadows might be the most important pop record ever made. Okay. Um, What about John Peel used to work in a factory in Rochdale and kind of established a little music industry there? Oliver Messiaen and his quartet for the end of time, which was conceived and premiered in a concentration camp. And uh, Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral commissioned the godfather of techno, who was this really kind of obscure Parisian composer to do their inaugural mass which was electronic which i was at as an altar boy but that's for another time really oh yeah i was there yeah oh my goodness yeah as an altar boy okay i'd forgotten that myself till just now more of that (laughs) when we get round to it so each time one of us will bring for you and you if you see what i mean a story to the table that we're particularly interested in that we hope the other one will be interested in we thought we'd start today with a couple of things that we're interested in the Bickershaw Festival of 1972, Woodstock comes to Wigan. And you're going to bring me some stuff about Yeah. Oh, and I'm going to tell you the story of uh, Leon Theremin, who invented the theremin. So essentially the man who invented electronic music, according to Bob Moog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and was also a Russian spy. Yeah, you know, you know quite a bit about so, Leon. So I'm hoping yes. you're going to tell me some stuff about his extraordinary life story. Have you ever been to Bickershaw? I have. I was there for the 40th anniversary reunion party of the Bickershaw Festival okay. in 2012. It would be 2012. That would be the uh, the anniversary. That would be the 40th, 40th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll know then 
that Bickershot is a tiny mining village. It's it, it says on Wikipedia it is a suburb of Abram. Now, if you know the local area, you know that Abram <laughs> is a tiny suburb of Wigan. So we're basically talking where I'm from, three miles away is Bickershot. We basically are talking one street and one pub. And the pub has some bearing on what we're going to talk about the foresters. Um, depending what your reaction will be to the name Bickershire, it depends whether you're crazy about brass bands, because they had a real top, you know, top of the range, world-beating brass band in the 30s and won loads of prizes and made various uh, re- successful recordings like The Mill in the Dale. But most people, if they know about them at all, will know Bickershire's been the site of this, this festival, isn't it, which happened in, as you say, 1972. These days, festivals have become so, like, big and slick and corporate. Because it's really interesting because it was trying to bring the US counterculture to a mining village in Wigan, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And why was that? Because I, I have seen some footage online, and obviously when I went to the reunion concert, people were talking about that. why that was. One person said it's because there were no venues up here at that time or something, and there were far more down south. And actually, when people put festivals on, the people who went to festivals were northerners. So they felt like they had to take that right. festival culture to the that, north. That kind of figures, because I guess by 72, you'd have had a couple of Glastonbury's, very small scale. But, but because it's weird, because in some ways it's the best and worst of festivals, I think. It, it's become a byword amongst a lot of people for the, how nightmarish a festival <laughs> can be because of the weather and the facilities. And yet it had fantastic music. If you read the recollections of people who went there, they all say how much they loved the music and how nightmarish the scenario was. It's basically, it was the brainchild of, I think, three guys, wasn't it, mainly? A Manchester businessman. Uh, Peter Harris. Peter Harris. Yeah. Who, I guess, stumped up the dosh that was needed initially. Yeah, and who allegedly ended up in prison the wow. day before the festival started. That's not a good allegedly. start. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he kept a very low profile throughout the whole thing, didn't he? And people and newscasters kept trying to get to the bottom of who this person was. And he right. didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. The more public face of it was a guy called Chris Hewitt, who uh, we might both have met, but yeah. you certainly met more times than me. Say a He's little bit about who Chris Hewitt is, yeah. Chris, well, how to describe Chris? Um, <laughs> I don't know. He just seems to be, he seems to have been at all these important events in Northern music history in the 70s. So he yeah. was also at Deeply Vale as well. Which was a series of festivals that came after Bickershaw. Yeah, yeah. and Bickershaw inspired him to do that. But um, he's a character. He was involved with a band called Tractor. Yeah, he was involved with a band called Tractor, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a band called Tractor who John Peel was really keen on. And the, the, out of that, John Peel supported financially the studios yeah, and record label, in Rochdale. Didn't he? In Rochdale. Yeah, John Peel having been, well, having worked in a mill in Rochdale. I think we'll tell that story in another episode. I was going to say, episode, that's, a, that's a good story all in itself, yeah, like John yeah. Peel worked in a mill in Rochdale. But, but he had Chris some affection for the time. Yeah, yeah, and Chris was, uh, was connected to that. And now he's, he's a kind of biographer, isn't he? Yeah. And he's, but the main public face of it, yeah. weirdly, is, <laughs> and this will shock people of a certain age, Jeremy Beadle. Now, if you know Jeremy Beadle, you'll know Beadle's About and Game for a Laugh and all those prank comedy shows in the 1980s when you must have been two. Uh, yeah, I was young, but I remember it. Do you remember him? Yeah, and it's funny how you almost at this event expect him to kind of pop up at some point and say, oh no, it was just a... <laughs> it's all a yeah, joke. Set up. Yeah, You've been yeah. framed. But he was a kind of hippie, wasn't he? He was a bit Branson-ish, I think. I think he was a hippie with an eye for the main chance. Okay. You know what I mean? An entrepreneurial hippie. I heard a story about him that he'd gone to... He'd been hospitalised as a, as a young boy or young man 
uh, for a long time and had learnt the Guinness Book of Records while he was in hospital. Oh, wow, really? And so he was interested in f- crazy things like this. And then he was working for, I think, Time Out, okay. the London listings magazine, had a Manchester version at the time. And Beadle was like the Northwest arts dude for that. And he happened yeah. to be in the office when he, the phone call came through saying, we're looking for someone who can book bands for a potential festival. And he became the guy. Beadle became the guy who got the American acts which are so much a part of why this festival's remembered. Right, yeah. okay. It is really strange seeing Jeremy Beadle in the uh, TV archive, the footage, because yes. that's just not who I remember him. So Because he was kind of younger and a bit hurrier yeah. and a bit more. But still, He's still very media savvy. Super yeah. media savvy, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So he wrote, so he sent a letter to the local council saying, this will differ from all previous festivals in one vital aspect. It will be a festival of contemporary arts, theatre, music, art exhibitions, sculpture and poetry, and not merely a pop festival. He said he said something like, if you go to rock festivals normally, there's too much rock. <laughs> and he said, you have to have, in a rather weird expression, the stamina of a stud to get through them, which is a very <laughs> odd thing to say, but, but that passed. It's quite 70s. It was it's the very 70s. 70s. So, yeah. It is. And, he, and so they, there was going to be all kinds of stuff. There was all kinds of stuff. There was Ken Campbell, who some people know, was like a radical theatre dude. Right. They had an exhibition of John Lennon's lithograph. Wow. They had private eye cartoons. So they did genuinely. A lot of pop festivals these days say, hey, we're a festival really of art. And what it means is they've got a stand up tent, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Or you can get a scallop in a shell (laughs) and pay four pounds for it. Exactly. But Bickershaw (laughs) really was, in the spirit of the times, I think, committed to this idea of the lively arts and covering it all. So um, it was a weekend in May, three days. They go to this site, as you said, that is, you know, in this little mining village. Not very structurally sound either, was it? That, that it was a mine shaft. Well, it was. They worried, didn't they? They worried. And the local that it would papers, the, the local papers at the time worried <laughs> that, that hippies, stoned hippies, would fall down mine shafts because of this. It's incredible that didn't happen. Well, it is really, but it was because uh, it, it, but it, they did have problems. The, the quality of the ground was such that it soon became a bog, a quagmire, fairly soon. But they did, this is the interesting thing, there's such a crazy mixture of the old and the new. So in terms of the facilities, they had giant screens. Yeah. They had two giant screens at either side of the stage. So apparently the view was great. Now, I would have said to you, giant screens probably came in in about 1986. Yeah, yeah. They had them then, but they also had dormitory tents. There were huge dormitory tents like the army would have for people to sleep in if you hadn't taken your own tent. What must those tents have been like? Oh, gosh. Five o'clock in the morning after three. (laughs) What must those tents have been like? Also, people only bathed once a week in the 70s, didn't they? Well, I think that's something of an exaggeration. (laughs) I wasn't there. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong. I know what you mean. I'm so, My I'm, dad still runs with that ethos, so... Well, we, I'm, don't, no, I don't know if your dad was a hippie, but, I mean, I don't think we're talking about the kind of people who probably were super kind of like, you know, muesli, granola, smoothies. No. You know, I think they probably were a bit wrong. The interesting thing is, Beadle, for a few days before the festival, there was the usual in the papers locally, we are going to be overrun by, you know, crazy drug fiends. But then Beadle's media campaign worked because the letters pages of the Wigan Observer, now the Wigan Observer that, that was our big local paper on a Friday. We had an evening post and chronicle every night, which wow. sounds bizarre. Now. Oh. But Friday's was the Wigan Observer. And uh, the letters page just before, because she said, support grows for Rock Festival. Because I think people thought, we might make a bit of dosh out of this. Yeah. That's what Beadle said. Beadle said in interviews with the local papers, Woodstock was in a slump. 
before Woodstock and we could make you basically the new Woodstock, the Woodstock of Lancashire sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, really good for the local economy. There are some good stories of uh, local businesses that thrived during those three days. Well, absolutely. There's that, there's that local shop. Yeah. Where they, and if you look at this, there's a 17 minute bit of footage in the BFI archive you can see online isn't there? and they interview the shopkeeper who says I'd, I'd heard of yoghurt before yeah. but I'd never actually <laughs> sold any and, and he, so he sells his first yoghurt ever but there's a, apparently at the, the catering <laughs> the festival there was a stall selling cheese sandwiches which didn't do very well because the local pub and that shop sold pies and balm cakes. Right. Which I love the idea of all these Hell's Angels going in for <laughs> pie balm before so seeing the Grateful Dead. Was yoghurt a hippie thing then? We're slightly digressing into yoghurt now, but Sorry. let's do it. <laughs> yoghurt then, 72. No. 72, it would have been quite new, I think. Yeah. The two big arrivals in town that week were the Grateful Dead and uh, yoghurt. yoghurt. <laughs> <laughs> but the, and the local pub was the Forester's Arms, which became a kind of default base for um, the, the people who were at the festival. Because apparently the gap between acts was so long. You could walk from the field across the road into the local pub, the Forester's Arms, and have a few pints right. before walking back. This and sounds the like next a great act. festival. Sounds good to me as well, that, yeah. <laughs> and apparently the locals in there, looking up from the dominoes, would, um, would regard these hippies with a mixture of... It's sort of contempt and amusement, really, but obviously they, they were thinking they're eight deep at the bar, so yeah, the bar takings are good. And absolutely. Hell's Angels drinking beer from their boots, apparently, as oh, well. Really? Something that went on, yeah. The, another thing that struck me, it's two worlds coming together, it's completely different worlds contrasting worlds it, coming it, together. it is it is but what's interesting though is if you read on the there's an excellent on the uk festival's website there's lots of people sharing their memories of bicker show which are fantastic a lot of them are basically kids who come from all over the country and they've some of them have got some of them got jobs some are students but a lot of them are kids like who were bread delivery men in cardiff who suddenly thought i fancy a bit of that right. because it was such a new thing a pop yeah, festival yeah. and came with nothing no money uh, one bloke comes with his mate who eats, who's only brought with him for food, some raw onions, which he <laughs> eats in the car on the way down. There's one bloke... Good luck to all the people in the dormitory tent, then. Exactly. There's a lot of drug-taking. Right. Uh, to, to slightly leap ahead to the conclusion of the festival, 30-odd drug busts, three people rec- recommended for psychiatric reports. But nearly everybody who I can read on this, this website for nostalgia of Bickershire is saying... Oh, anyway, got on Friday and did a black microdot and some speed, <laughs> which I think it was a very Hell's Angelsy festival. There was a lot right, of Hell's okay. Angels about. And so consequently, I think it became quite a nightmarish scenario quite soon. Well, the man in the local shop, he's, I don't know, he's not as polite, is he, on day two about the people who are coming in? Is he not? I'm not, I'm not sure I've no, seen that bit. No, he said is... that he thought some cans had gone missing. He wow. said, I've got a story about the chippy. So okay, good, that. yeah, yeah. So uh, the guy who ran story. the local chippy, he put the uh, price of fish and chips from three shillings up to 12, and after the festival, he bought himself a bungalow outright. You're joking? Yeah. <laughs> that is a great... I would have that chippy... A bungalow. St- I hope that chippy's still there. We should go to it. Yeah, take, yeah. There should be a plaque outside. Yeah, there should. A rock plaque, shouldn't there? That's a leap, though, isn't it? Three <laughs> shillings is. to 12. Wow, that is fantastic. Captain Beefheart paid for this chippy, as you say, <laughs> outside, shouldn't it? We should, well, we should mention the, the, the lineup. The lineup is extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, Donovan, Linda Lewis, I'm thinking, I'm, no apologies to these great people, but certainly remember the lesser ones. Donovan, Linda Lewis, Pacific Gas and Electric, Hawkwind, The Kinks, Dr. John. But what he also succeeded in doing, Beadle, was getting basically the two big acts were The Grateful Dead and Captain Beefheart, who were the absolute. Like colossi yeah. of the alternative culture it's at the time. It's unbelievable, isn't it? 
Well, it is kind of unbelievable. There were a lot of no-shows. Roy Harper, third-year band, quick simple messenger service, said they'd come, but didn't in the end. But I think most people came for either Beefheart or uh, The Grateful Dead, didn't they? Because the, the, the TV report starts and you can see there's a horse and cart. There is, it's incredible, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. at first I thought I clicked on the wrong thing. And then so there's people loading things onto this horse and cart and then, it's, <laughs> and then shots of these older men in flat caps. Yeah. And sort of dour expressions. Yeah. And then across the road, all these like colourful yeah. hippies. And it is like when you see footage of the 1960s, you see blokes in bowler hats going to work in London. You think, did anybody ever really dress like that? This is like this about the north, isn't it? Yeah. It's loads of blokes in mufflers and flat caps going, look at the state of him over there with long hair. <laughs> eating it, his yogurt. Eating, <laughs> bringing yogurt to our town, our village, <laughs> you should say. Um, some of the people who were there, Elvis Costello, who apparently was inspired to form a band by the Grateful Dead set which some people say was five hours yeah. long. But I don't think the whole festival lasted for much longer. <laughs> I don't I think that's probably an exaggeration. It didn't they go on until like three in the morning? Did well, no they one certainly complain didn't, about the noise? They certainly didn't come on until very late. Beefheart yeah. came on at four in the morning. I mean, we could go methodically through every day and night and the itinerary, but I think that might be a bit tedious to yeah. do, really. And who, who honestly knows the truth? <laughs> but that's a very good point. That is a very good point. There is some film footage, and there's, fo- there's recorded footage of Beefheart's set. Um, Joe Strummer, who yep. was 19, was there, later formed The Clash. Costello, as we've said. Uh, rock journalist of legend Nick Kent arrived on a tandem with a pint of Guinness in a duffel bag. How did mm. you do that? What's a duffel bag? Oh, Elizabeth. <laughs> Oh, no, this is even worse than the when did yoghurt arrive in the UK Sorry. conversation. It's kind of a, it's sort of a baggy put over one shoulder with a kind of strap that tightens at the top. Right, okay. <sighs> were, they, were they designed to hold Guinness? No, they weren't. All right, okay. Well, that's all we hold, need to know. They were designed to hold your swimming trunks and oh, a right, towel okay. when you went to the baths. Right, okay. But Nick oh, Kent's I know what you mean, a draw, like a pull string. That's exactly it, like right, a drawstring okay. bag. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the weather was terrible. Beadle, when he'd been asked about the weather uh, beforehand, said, well, all festivals have taken a gamble on the weather and we have used scientific predictive technology, which is presumably <laughs> wetting their finger and putting it in the air at that point. <laughs> and we've did this, we know this is the driest period every year, is this May weekend <laughs> or this May, the May period. It rained all weekend and matter was foggy can you imagine that oh, it was gosh. a foggy rock festival imagine some <laughs> hell's angel coming looming at you out of the mist with a cheese sandwich and some yogurt <laughs> you know so it was expensive it, fish and chips they also had a high dive thing in front of the stage have you seen the footage of this they've got people diving high diving from, oh, a, really? from a raised platform <laughs> into and when they, this had got too dirty and they wanted to change it they tipped it out in front of the stage which turned the whole front of the stage area into, into like Passchendaele, swamp. into a swamp. Yeah, wow. a bog, yeah. Um, I love that there's only three people organising this. When you consider how many people are organising Glastonbury. Well, yeah. And it was a massive thing. In well, Jeremy Beadle, been... didn't he say something like, oh, well, we, we think a hundred, we've sold 100,000 tickets That's or right. something, but we expect maybe only 80,000 will That's turn right. up. They That's got, huge. Nobody's really sure what the numbers were. The organisation was so bad, really, in some ways. Because you could, if you wanted to leave and got the foresters' arms for a pint, you could just say, "Can I have a pass out?" So, because a lot of people, when they become too drug-addled, struck, tired, struck, wet to carry on, or had to go back to work, <laughs> would say, "Can I have a pass out?" and sell it to someone outside for half price. Right. Okay. So they lost sixty grand. Beadle says oh, really? they lost sixty grand oh. on it. Apart from that guy, the chippy. Um, <laughs> so the weather was terrible. But I suppose the main thing we should talk about is nearly everyone says that the music was fantastic. Yeah. 
Apparently, there were great sets by Incredible String Band and Donovan and Dr. John. Um, the one band who don't seem to have gone down very well is a band called Pacific Gas and Electric because they followed Beefheart, presumably at something like five or six in the morning because Beefheart came on at four with Rocket Morton, his guitarist, smoking a cigar. Beefheart apparently was so brilliant. Uh, and well, we so can th- cut them some slack. We'll cut, yeah. yeah, but apparently all the music was tremendous. There's a fantastic recollection of Beefheart set online by a guy called Charles G, who basically takes acid, <laughs> starts to really have a bad time, and ends up backstage in the backstage compound on Beefheart's bus. Okay. And Captain Beefheart comes to me. This guy's seeing basically skeletal zombie figures coming at him out of the murk and stuff like this, and it's not going well for him. And, and he's kind of, and he's covered in mud, and Beefheart says, do you know who I am? And he, Charles G says, I don't think he meant it in an arrogant way. He meant, like, I'm Captain Beefheart. Can I help you? You yeah. know what I mean? Not like and Beefheart he's take, the Messiah. Exactly. Beefheart <laughs> takes him under his wing. Beefheart looks after him. He says, look, you better stay in this buzz with us. You don't look in a good way, man. Oh, wow. And later, when he tries to go back to the hotel with Beefheart, he watches the show from the side of the stage and tries to go back to the hotel with Beefheart. Beefheart, at this point, I think, sensibly says, like, enough's enough, mate. But the guy says, I've always remembered how completely decent Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, how really he could tell oh, that this was a fellow head in distress. Yeah. And he really looked after me, which is, which is quite sweet. So, yeah, the music was apparently fantastic. Um, the Haydock Brass Band played and got a great reception. Oh. Mike Westbrook's Jazz Band played and got a great reception, I think. Um, the Kinks were apparently very, very drunk, drunker than normal. Ray Davis poured a bottle of whiskey over the brass section and then they threw a piano into the crowd. Right, okay. Yeah. A whole piano. A whole piano. But I think was there, there wasn't um, any covering on the no. stage. No. So they had to reduce the volume, or they had some kind of electricity problem, I think, because it was because obviously it, a massive hazard. Well, of course it is. Yeah, a massive hazard. Yeah. But fact, no one died. In fact, so think, thinking about it, it is a miracle no one was, was hurt, it really. Is, isn't it? Because we're talking about an enormous amount of people and no infrastructure. Really. Yeah. Rather like Woodstock. Yeah. I don't think I there mean, were any toilets, were there, or anything no. like that? I mean, it think isn't about those sorts of things. It isn't an exaggeration to say in some ways it was the British Woodstock, because it combined that weird thing of peace and love vibes and fantastic music with really woeful lack of facilities in lots of ways, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, But, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, it seems to have been fond- fondly remembered by everyone who went there. It's kind of the first and the last of things. It's the last of the really anarchic, hurry festivals before things start to get better organised and more corporate and slick. Yeah, but yeah. in some ways, it's the first of those new ones with the giant screens and the you know multimedia yeah, yeah. art stuff and things like that. And uh, so in some ways, it's kind of like the missing link between Woodstock and like the Glastonbury of today. Yeah, absolutely. And we should say we're not really festival people, are we? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were the only people who managed to find uh, Donamy at Glastonbury, yeah. weren't we? <laughs> Everyone else was eating kind of really super healthy, yeah, you know. Falafel. That's know, yeah, plant-based all that things. Plant-based things, vegan yeah. things. We went, we got Donamy and chips yeah. and that, as an act of class <laughs> and regional rebellion. But having said that, I, I mean, said that, I think what Emily Evis does is fantastic. It is. It's just it's not Absolutely. for us, maybe. But I don't know. I'd quite fancy going to the Bookshire Festival. So do you remember reading about it then? Did you see the news reports? I think I vaguely did. And I think I vaguely remember my mum and dad saying, oh, there's going to be a big pop festival in Bookshire. <laughs> what you did know? they think about it? I think they probably thought, because I'm, I'm guessing, I was 11, so they'd be, in, uh, they'd be, I don't know, 30-ish, something like that. They probably thought it was amusing. I think people did generally think it was amusing, you yeah. know, more than anything else. But the weird reason I knew quite a lot about it at the time was I was getting first-hand reports about it the week after, as it were, back at school, because I was in the first year of big school. 
a lad in my class called Mick McKevitt was basically an 11-year-old Hells Angel. Now, this sounds bizarre, but I remember now vividly the clothes he would wear, those kind of, that denim waistcoat with the sleeves ripped off with like a Rolling Stones logo on the back or something like that. And how he can have been a Hells Angel has always baffled me, but thinking about it this week, because I've previously always thought, I wonder why his mum and dad let him do that. They let him go to the Bickershire Festival and they let him hang out and listen to these records and drink and all this. I'm thinking his mum and dad probably were of that community themselves. If they weren't Hells Angels, they were probably very liberal, hippie parents of 30. And he came in and told me, man, because I think he knew I was a bit of a weird kid into music as well. And he said, oh, it was fantastic. You should have been at the Bickershire Festival. I brought you a programme. Oh. And I had that programme, which I lovingly poured over these mad, these names that to me sounded so mysterious and magical, you know, Captain Beefheart and his yeah, magic yeah. band, The Grateful Dead. And I had it for years through various flat moves, and then somewhere along the way it went, and apparently a, an original Bickershire programme now would, would cost you about 300 quid. But I remember reading it at the time. You could have sold it and thinking, bought yourself a bungalow. Too, right? oh, exactly, <laughs> a, a kind of small bungalow <laughs> with the process. But no, it was. I think it's just. I, I think it is an extraordinary sort of bit of British social and pop history. The Bishop has done. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Stuart, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you more about is the story of Lev Turnin, or Leon Theremin, as he became known. And as I would know him, I wouldn't know who Lev Turnin was, but yeah. so, it, so it's anglicised, is anglicized it, to, to Leon yeah, Theremin? Okay. of his Russian name. Uh, Leon Theremin, you might have guessed, the inventor of the theremin. Yep. So, for people who don't know what a theremin is, it's kind of a rod, and you play it by moving your hands backwards and forwards and basically pluck the sounds out of the air that's yeah. how it seems it's got two sort of sticks hasn't it hasn't it got yeah. two sticks a horizontal one and a yeah, and yeah. You, so you and play vertical yeah. vertical so there's two for. little there's two bits to play it's actually really difficult to play but we'll come on to that a little bit later yeah yeah to put the significance of this story into some context uh, leon theremin as i mentioned at the top he is credited as being the inventor of electronic music right by bob moog so that's yeah. or bob moog as the american say which is that i know bob moog let's go with because that's uh, that's how he called himself someone wants to tell me it's actually something like oh really it's a dutch name but we're not going to say that obviously moog moog um, so yeah, he he says that Leon Theremin basically invented electronic music. Well, he should know, shouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah, but um, apart from that, he was also a Russian spy. Now this I didn't know. Yeah. So the theremin was invented a hundred years ago this year, serendipitously oh, right. for us. Okay. It's like we all planned it. Yeah. 
me, you and Leon. Yeah. yeah. And he was born in Russia in 1896. He trained both as a classical musician and an engineer. Oh, so um, he's a bit of both. Yeah, right. yeah. That he, would figure. He yeah. studied classical cello and he was also an inventor and he showed really early talent right. for invention. So even when he was 17, he had a laboratory in his, in his home. Right. But his education was interrupted by the First World War and he enrolled at a military engineering school in Petrograd, as it was known then. Of course, um, yeah. And here he started to kind of work with transmissions technology Technology. So right. um, radio technology was really sort of advancing during World War One. Yeah, I think it's worth saying. As yeah, it we're is. Yeah, all radio yeah. geeks. They yeah. had battery. They had um, radio packs that were saddled onto horses and almost part of the saddle, um, right. which goes, I think, a long way to show how much radio technology advan- had advanced beyond other kinds of technology. That, yeah, you know, yeah. they were horse-drawn kind of radio trans- transmitters. Yeah. Uh, Russian Revolution was also happening at the same time as the First World War. Yeah. 1917, St. Petersburg was kind of the centre of the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he had built a radio studio. So being a good communist, yeah. when the White Army started to advance on uh, St. Pe- on St. Petersburg, Petrograd as it was, uh, he detonated the entire radio studio. Really? His 200-foot antennae that he'd built. He blew it up? Yeah, because apparently the White Army were going to take it over and start transmitting and propaganda. To, yeah. He didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. That's a bit like Lee Scratch Perry, the great dub producer who burned down his studio. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another story for another notable. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so right. a bit so like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is kind of, the story starts with him emerging from the First World War, the Russian Don't Revolution. Emerging from Tom and Jerry style with <laughs> yeah. a blackened face yeah. from the ruins of his radio station. Well, that exactly, right. yeah. And, you know, the First World War, the Russian Revolution, he's blown up his own radio station. Yeah. We're not even really at the beginning of the story yet. Right, yeah. So he goes to work for this physical technical institute in St. Petersburg. So even though, you know, the Russian economy was in tatters at this time, the Bolsheviks put a lot of kind of resources and investment into technology and and invention. So he was working at this newly formed uh, physical technical institute in St. Petersburg, uh, a center for covert activity. Right. So he was his career in Russian espionage had begun as a very young man. By yeah. this point, he will have been about no more than nineteen or twenty. Oh right, I didn't know. So, so he's a spy first, really. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So he starts right. off, and he's invented. He's working with kind of because he's he's got this background in radio transmission. I know that he was working with which was apparently a big deal at the time. Vacuum tubes, yeah. wasn't it? Which were you could send radio signals very efficiently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I those, mean, as his apparent, I'm no expert, but it was no, that's like true. That, and it? those First World War transmitting devices that yeah. were carried on horses, they used vacuum tubes. They used tubes. vacuum tubes. Yeah. Uh, they were also oscillators right. and electromagnetic fields. That's as much as I understand okay. about this technology well, that's and science. All need to know, I guess, it yeah. is basically, yeah. Later, he went on to create a really sophisticated and famous listening device called the Thing. The Thing, which was hidden in the American ambassador's Moscow office all the way through the Cold War, presented to the American ambassador by a choir of Soviet children. They sang and then pre- presented him with this. Yeah. Um, it was like an it's, ornament. It's like the seal, like the it's American seal. seal with yeah. the eagle on it, isn't it? And he, and he put a very sophisticated listening device yeah. in. Yeah, and it was there until the mid-50s. Yeah. But he invents the theremin kind of by accident, doesn't he? Just yeah. Just by realising that moving your hand near it yeah, yeah. emits a... Well, changes a kind of whistling sound, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So while he was kind of... Inve- I mean, the I should say the thing came much later. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but he he started off working with oscillators and vacuum tubes and radio technology. And as he was sort of fiddling around with this technology, he'd created this device that because of the electromagnetic fields around the device, when he moved his body away or, you know, near to the device, it created this whistling, yeah, sound. whistling sound. He'd added an audion, it's called. Right. And I think that was partly to detect what was happening around the device. Yeah. So suddenly the dormant cellist inside him was right. awoken and he started to play Sansons. And uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. okay. and actually, if you hear uh, a theremin, you can see the kind of similarities in the cello a little you bit. Can. Well, they, they both look so, quite melancholic yeah, sound, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, yeah slightly yeah. kind of howling yeah. sound. So his employees saw him doing this and thought that he was a wizard. And I should this is another aside, but another yeah. extraordinary aside. He had a bit of a reputation for being, well, for dabbling with dark arts because okay. he thought that radio waves could bring dead people back to life. Right. And he'd even suggested trying this out on someone who'd recently died from the Institute, which suggests, you know, a lack of empathy. Which Did they not give know, it a go then? Well, no, they didn't. Short no, no. What a short-sighted institute. <laughs> I would have definitely how, had a go at that. Just think where we'd be now. <laughs> just had a go. Him. I know. Yeah. So here he is um, yeah. plucking music out yeah. of the air with his hands, and everyone thinks that he's this, you know, yeah, well, magician. Well, he is, an, rightly so. They think he's an eccentric, but they think now he really is a, a magician. So the Kremlin hear about this, and a clapped-out Austin is sent from Moscow, and he's sent for an audience with Lenin. Yeah, he meets Lenin, um, doesn't he? Yeah, and perhaps unsurprisingly, given what I've just told you about Leon Theremin, he gets on like a house on fire with Lenin. Yeah, Lenin loved him, didn't he? Yeah, He yeah. did. Um, Theremin described Lenin as a very nice and pleasant person. And uh, at this point, the instrument was called an ethertone. But Lenin was so kind of bewitched by it that he asked Leon Theremin to give him some lessons. And right. um, he taught him. To, he taught him how to play a Scriabin etude right. on the theremin and Glinka Skylark. Wow! So afterwards, he was sent on this agitprop tour of Russia to persuade the peasants and the masses, you know, of the wonders of, of electricity. Oh, the wonders of electrification. Yeah, Lenin yeah. was keen on getting Russia electrified. So that they wasn't would he? they would adopt it, yeah. and you know, Russia would become this, as I say, shiny yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. technologically advanced society. And his fame spread. He was offered in 1923 £25,000 for one appearance at Carnegie Hall, um, which must have been well, a phenomenal enough to buy amount. a bungalow anyway, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, an, an unbelievable amount. So he becomes this kind of massive celebrity all around the world. He plays the Carnegie Hall. He plays the Royal Albert Hall. He toured the States, didn't he? Yeah. He did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and eventually settled in America, became friends with Albert Einstein, he taught Clara... Clara Rockmore, now I know this. Yeah, yeah. Clara Rockmore is kind of the virtuoso of the theremin, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, is. she is. And she was married to a really famous and very rich attorney. Okay. If you listen to, if you go online and listen to recordings of the theremin, it's often Clara Rockmore. She was like the, the first great exponent of it, wasn't she? Yeah. Apart from theremin himself. Yeah, so he... And he proposed to her, but she refused him. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So once he's in America, he's mixing with Albert Einstein. He meets Clara Rockmore. It's Clara Rockmore. It's yeah, yeah. Clara Rockmore teaches her how to play the theremin, proposes to her. She refuses him. And so instead, he marries an African-American prima ballerina called Lavinia Williams. Right. Which was quite a controversial mm. thing. Sadly, as we know, you know, racism was rife in the States at this time. Mm. So it heightened people's suspicions of him. Right. RCA, the recording company, had patented the theremin. 
and yeah. um, did a limited run. And it was kind of marketed to the Americans as an instrument that would be more popular than the, than the piano. And they thought people would have them in their front rooms they, and just learn yeah. to play them. Didn't they get it wrong, though? Didn't they say it's really easy to play? They yeah. sold it to people on the ground. It's really easy to play, and it's not it's easy not to play, all. is it? No. Yeah, no. and so people were buying these ceremonies and getting them home, and then there was just this, like, horrible howling, haunt, you know, quite haunted sort of whistling sound. And all over America, irate husbands and wives were saying <laughs> to their partners, you wasted all that money on that goddamn theremin, <laughs> and you never even play it. <laughs> Why, yeah, you ought to. I think we should probably talk about the sound of it because well, yeah. there is, and I know you've seen this, the footage online of, of him playing of him the playing it. It's yeah. such a magical, it, it is, is very magical. It is, and of course, seeing a guy just waving his arms around, making the music, you can see why people thought it had a, you know, had a, 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 a magical element to it, yeah, yeah. an occult element almost. Uh, absolutely. And what's interesting is that even though it was kind of invented in this quite authoritarian environment, yeah. it actually became quite a sort of a symbol of transgression and dissent in music and this kind yeah. of quite rebellious, otherworldly, yeah. you know, and it became a go- represent the unexplained. Oh, well, it became a go-to sound for movie makers who wanted to do anything spooky, mysterious, sci-fi, anything like that, didn't it? Yeah, it abs- yeah. yeah absolutely. Just some of the people who use the theremin in music. Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. Billy Wilder's Lost Weekend, yeah, yep. for the, the sort of hallucinatory sequences. Yeah, in that, and yeah. it's and it's used in Hitchcock's Spellbound as well. Um, yes, it is. The soundtrack by... Oh, Miklos Ro- Rosa. Rosa. Yeah. Brian Jones, you know, famously... Yeah, um, Brian Jones had one on. The Stones used it, didn't they? On? They did, on Between the Buttons. It's, it features on that record. It's on Whole Lot of Love. It, that that's that kind of trancey trip bit in Whole Lot yeah, of Love has got yeah. a theremin on yeah. it by Led Zeppelin. But there's a common urban myth stroke falsehood, isn't there, about that, that there's one on good vibrations, and okay. it isn't. Oh, really? It isn't a okay. theremin on good vibrations. It's a ribbon synthesizer, but they were trying to get the sound of a theremin, and the sound's almost identical to a theremin, but it isn't actually a theremin on the Beach Boys' good vibrations. Yeah. Right, okay. So you can but, impress people in the pub with that. Well, interestingly, the synthesizer grew out of the theremin. It so, did, yeah. So the Moog empire, Bob Moog, started his entire empire making home... Yeah. home kit theremins yeah you know that was his kind of first a passion throughout his whole, said his his first, whole life said his, his first, first and last love was yeah, the theremin yeah. wasn't it and in between he invented the synthesizer yeah absolutely yeah. and it was very much the same kind of technology vacuums yeah, and yeah. oscillators and electromagnetic right. fields all that kind of thing um so meanwhile Leon theremin just when you thought the story couldn't get any mm. weirder Throughout this whole time, while he's been kind of mixing with Einstein and, you know, married to this prima ballerina, mm. he's also still engaged in Russian espionage. So industrial espionage. Mm-hmm. So he's selling the... Well, he's informing the Russians of what is happening in radio technology in America. Yeah. And the Second World War is about to start. The FBI have this massive file on him. Mm-hmm. The theremin hasn't sold like they thought it would. So he's got mounting debts. He's got the FBI kind of hot on his tail. Right. And all this controversy around his marriage as well. So he just does one, basically. Right. Without even telling poor Lavinia. Why? He just, he just quits? Just, just, he gets a really early morning boat and, and absolutely disappears. Right. People thought he'd been captured by Soviet officials, actually, but that's not true. He, he, but he does he go back to states, Russia, doesn't he? He goes back to Russia, but in Russia, Stalin is now in charge. Yeah. And because Leon Theremin has been in America, yeah. Stalin is suspicious of him and sends him to the most remote gulag in Siberia. Yeah. And yeah. the stories, um, there's a really good biography of Leon Theremin by Albert Glinsky. And he, spoke, uh, he had sort of letters and um, diary accounts that he'd written about his time and been sent to this gulag. And it's typical of lots of those accounts that you hear and read about of people 
in Stalinist yeah. Russia who was sent to gulags. But it's horrific. It's still really kind of striking yeah. how awful it is. People dying in the carriage, packed in, you know, just no food, no water yeah. for days. Yeah. He wasn't but, there for very long, was he? I think he was he lucky. He wasn't there for very long. Just a few months he was there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. six months because, right. because of the Second World War. Stalin had put everyone who had any talent in a gulag yeah, <laughs> and realised that he needed yeah, them out yeah. for the war effort. Yeah. So he was released. And then he lives out the rest of his life in the Soviet Union, doesn't he? But he he's does. never really, he isn't for, for years, for, for the next 20, more, the next 40 years. He's never really fated in his own country. He lives apparently in a tiny communal apartment in yeah. one room. And, you know, he parts about still on, on the fringes of, of science, doesn't he? Yeah, and doing he, stuff. he becomes an academic. He teaches at academic, um, yeah. the University of Moscow. But then in 89, of course, the Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union collapses in due order, and he suddenly becomes fated, doesn't he? Yeah. He dies in 1993, aged nearly 100. Yeah. But, in the, but in those last few years of his life, he gets to play again live, doesn't he, in yeah, various places around the world? Yeah. There's a big Someone documentary made on about a, him. On a, on a newspaper article about, you know, about yeah. what he'd done while he was in America. Because I didn't know it. that. If you'd said, I mean, I know the name Leon Theremin, but I would have thought, oh, he died in the 50s. But yeah. he didn't. He died in 1993, so he, he saw the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And just belatedly, just before he died, he sort of got, I mean, it's really, it's a kind of nice end that at least he got some kind of recognition for what a, what a genius he is. Because it, because of the theremin's weird look and what people do mm. to play it, the waving of the hands around, I think sometimes people think it's a novelty instrument. But as you say, it's not. It's kind of the forerunner of all electronic music, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, that just creating that sound with electronic technology. I mean, that was it was so rudimentary. And yeah. so at the beginning of, you know, that whole, well, the, yeah. it was the birth of that sound and that sort of technology working in that way and f- for musical purpose and it was also it was his kind of musical brain coming together with his inventive mind yeah. that created it because you wonder if he'd not been a cellist if he'd not yeah. had that classical background whether when those sounds started to emerge he would have thought to kind of play them and make music yeah. or certainly not to play sansons and glinker and so, the funny thing is, when you tell me that, I realised that when I was a kid, probably because I used to watch Joe 90, in which quite often they would, you know, implant, a, he would get the brain of a concert pianist to go and do some uh, espionage work. I used to think, oh, that'd be something I'd like to do when I'm older. I'd like to be a musician <laughs> who's also a <Really>? spy. <laughs> but uh, what I've now realised is that Leon Theremin did it first. He really was he spy. Was spy. On his business card, yeah. it said, <laughs> musician, also spy. Yeah, and you run the risk of being sent to a gulag as well. Yeah, there is that. So... <laughs> But the legacy, you know, we mentioned Bob Moog, but now it's seen as kind of a hipster thing. Yes. So the theremin is having a bit of a renaissance. I went to a ridiculously cool festival in North Carolina in Asheville, which is where the Moog factory is. The Moog festival it was. And everyone was trying to learn the theremin. It was it was just this like hipster thing, I guess, because the technology is retro, and you know yeah. hipsters love that, don't they? I yeah. well, no, well, it's and well, just in time for its hundredth birthday, then. Absolutely, yeah. And um, there's a, a German theremin player who I recommend people check out called Carolina Eich. Okay. She writes absolutely beautiful music for the theremin, and she's I've spoken to her about it, and she said she uh, she thinks that it's moved beyond that really sort of kitsch vibrato now. Yeah. And you can get a much more clean sound. So really, it's a really sort of fresh sounding instrument now. What I love about this is that the strangeness of the story matches kind of the strangeness of the instrument and and the sound. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But as you say, other people, it's been associated with that kind of weirdness and sci-fi. But people have also tried to, you know, show up what a beautiful instrument as well and if you want to hear the theremin used in a more modern like ambient almost industrial techno way 
There's an Icelandic musician, a woman called Hekla, Icelandic by birth, now based in Berlin, used to play the theremin as a lead instrument in a, in a kind of grunge punk band who's made a beautiful album called A, which is full of instrumental ambient pieces uh, for the theremin, which is very different. Well, thank you. I thought I knew a bit about the theremin, <laughs> but, but clearly... There's a lot to it. There is a lot to find, what a lot life, to learn. What a life, as my granddad would say. I know. Well, what a life, indeed. Uh, the strange story of uh, Leon Theremin. Or oh, what was his real name? Lev Turning. Lev Turning. Um, well, that's about it for our first Notable. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do come back for more after, of course, liking and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts from. Next time, Paul is dead... Or is he? And the greatest year in jazz. Notable. The podcast. (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.